Hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is January 25th, 2024, and we have Michael Long. Michael Long is the Thomas Suzanne Murphy Professor of Neuroscience and Physiology and Professor in the Department of Otolaryngology at the New York University School of Medicine. And uh, Michael's work focuses on learning and performance of skilled sequential motor activities. He studies in a broad range of species and a lot of different kinds of behaviors, including birdsong, learning, human language production and conversation, parrot vocalization, and vocalization, even sort of conversational vocalizations in mice, which maybe we'll get to talk about a little bit. And this isn't Michael's first time on the podcast. He was here in September 2015 when he was a fairly new assistant professor. I think he'd been only on the job two or three years at that time. And now he's Suzanne um, Murphy professor. <laughs> so uh, that's been quite a change probably in your life during that time. So things have changed since then. But I would recommend l listening to our previous podcast with Michael, that was episode 133, in case you want to go back to find it. So, I'm Michael. Hi. And I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So, Michael, it seems to me a lot of the behaviors that you study involve precisely timed sequences uh, of movement that form larger movements out of their little pieces. And they, all of it has to happen in a particular order, so the sequences have to have, be precisely timed. And then the little components within the bigger thing have to be precisely timed, but also the bigger chunks have to be precisely timed. And then the whole thing has to be triggered at the right time and subject to feedback to see whether it's turning out the right way. Conversations are especially like that because you're, you can't control the timing of the other person. And, um, and in some cases, the behavior is highly stereotyped, like in Zebra Finch Birdsong, and sometimes it's like the opposite of that is in human speech, which is super flexible, and the components are words, which can be used in any order you like. So I think traditionally, neuroscientists have favored a kind of hierarchical way of thinking about that, which is a little bit of an analogy to the way computer programs work. So we write some low-level primitive pieces of code that can be called in any order, they happen in their own timing, and then they get called in according to some sequencer, and then that thing gets triggered and so on. And that's our analogy that we use. And it's just a computer analogy. It's not the a, truth. A and very helpful computer analogy. Computer analogies can be very helpful. And so at each one of these levels, though, there can be a, a mess up, and you have to detect that and correct what you're doing. Right. And so this sequential the correction of a sequence can happen at any time between the little tiny pieces or between the larger chunks or deciding when to start or when to stop. And, um, and uh, we have to ask ourselves, you know, is there any general scheme for this that works across species and across movements? Or is each one of these things going to be its own hack that just solves the one problem and doesn't solve the rest? Right. So... Uh First of all, um, what an amazing set of ideas you've laid out here. There's, there's, a, there's a ton to kind of sink into there. But, but let me first address uh, w why study a whole zoo of animals. We have songbirds. We have parrots. We have vocalizing Costa Rican rodents and also people. Um, and, and so I, I want to take a step back from that. And, and I want to say that what drove me to do neuroscience, to understand how groups of cells work together to create behavior. And what I love about 
behavior is is it's kind of real world ethologically irrelevant kind of meaning and uh, there's really something quite meaningful about language and in, in human communication our ability to to talk to others and i think if you think about what we've all had to go through for the last three or four years and the, the pandemic and really having uh, being much more siloed and having being cut off from our social networks it's something that is is really uh, kind of like a nutrient to our lives. Mm -hmm. And um, so how to study language? It's hard. Uh, humans are incredibly complex. And, uh, and it's really difficult to do uh, experiments in, in, in people. Um, you, you know, we're really limited in the amount of tools that we can use. Uh, it's about patient safety. It's about trying to make sure that uh, we do no harm. And so we have to put that absolutely at the forefront. Um, there's another major hurdle, and the hurdle is that humans are unique in their ability to have language. But language itself is really a multifaceted thing. And so language has a lot of different uh, features. And we think that in each one of these creatures, we're basically trying to look at one aspect of language and peel that off and, and understand how that can work by modeling that in, in these different animals that we're, we're studying in the lab. But we also, we also look at humans too. And so um, we're, we're trying to balance these two things. The, the idea that we can look into a simpler brain that maybe is easier for us to understand. Something like a songbird brain that's much smaller and instead of having you know, 86 billion cells, this, this zebra finch has 40,000 cells that are controlling this amazing uh, singing behavior. That you know, focal imitation is a rare skill and only a few animals have it, songbirds being one of those. And uh, the great thing about the zebra finch, which is our, our kind of songbird of choice, is they sing all year long. I, I have some very uh, frustrated friends who study seasonal songbirds too, and they're going to sing one month out of the year and the rest of the time they're just waiting for that breeding season to happen again to, to get more information about how that brain works. So the zebra finch sings in captivity, they breed in captivity, they sing all year long and, uh, and a lot is known about them. So we can really go deep and really understand how those networks that produce that vocalization work. So, um, but, but that kind of model systems idea is based on the idea that what we learn about species A is gonna tell us something about humans. And so you're, you fill it in with a bunch of other species. So I was hoping we could get some kind of notion because every time we've had many birdsong experts on the podcast, yes. in fact, probably more than anything else. We've had <laughs> right. And then, and one of the things that everybody always reliably says is, well, zebra finches are, are their own unique thing. <clears throat> They're easy to study, <clears throat> but human language isn't really like that. And, uh, and that, uh, and so, it can't be completely true. There wouldn't be a great model, or maybe a model for some other kind of sequential motor action. So you've studied other animals. What do so you see? As I, I think the zebra finch. I mean, obviously, the zebra finch is a very limited animal in mm -hmm. that uh, typically they they listen to their father, they memorize that song. The song is maybe half a second to a second long. They practice hundreds of thousands of times to get that just right. Uh, we have more than just half a second of, of communication, right? So we're very flexible. Um, in the zebra finch, the females don't sing. So this is a, a, a difference as well. 
But what I think is amazing is they do have the ability to, to vocally imitate. And, and we want to see how a brain can do that. Even if they solve it a different way, you know, seeing how they solve it is interesting. And seeing how those things are conserved is also interesting. And so I can look at the Drosophila. We've learned a ton from the fruit fly. It's a very simple brain. And one big, big push in the fruit fly now is to understand spatial navigation, heading, and, and, and all of this. So if you've heard about the hippocampal system, obviously you have, um, you know, they've been able to study that in the, the fly. And so there's a compass within this fly's brain, a kind of attractor model that has a lot of the same flavors as what we might find in, in the same kind of heading circuits in people. Now, if we think about the neurotransmitters in the fly, centrally, they're using acetylcholine, and at the muscle, they're squirting out glutamate. That's exactly opposite from what happens in mammals, exactly opposite from what happens uh, in, in humans. But we can learn general principles from the fly. And is it exactly the same uh, instantiation? Is it exactly the same uh, machinery? Maybe not. But I think by looking at that, we have some fighting chance of figuring out how an animal is capable of this behavior. So we could look for these kind of general principles. But, um, but to give you a, an idea of how things have gone from, from uh, animal back up to human, this is something that, that uh, now brings in the singing mice. So we started working on Costa Rican singing rodents and, and a lot of the lab mice that, that people have studied in, in, in any given biology lab uh, make ultrasonic vocalization. So if they smell a female or if they have some kind of stimulus that's salient to them, they might make these kind of disorganized, very high frequency. We, we can't hear them without the aid of specialized uh, recording equipment. Um, uh, but they do so in kind of an open loop manner. They don't really communicate back and forth with this. Uh, we uh, were in contact now, maybe 10 years uh, ago now, with a guy called Steve Phelps, who works at uh, UT Austin. And what Steve does is he, he, he's an ecologist and evolutionary biologist who's an incredibly brilliant guy. He goes out to Costa Rica and studies these animals in the cloud forests of Costa Rica, and they form duets with each other. They countersing back and forth, back and forth. And so what I mean by that is just like in conversation, one animal will sing, and when that animal is done, the other animal sings rapidly back, and sometimes they'll, they'll do this many times, um, like an exchange, and they're, they're passing information. So one animal will sing, and, and that animal can hear the identity there, and they know, ah, I've had a problem with this animal. Maybe I don't invade that territory. I can hear what, what he's singing. And, uh, and so we started studying these guys, and it's been, uh, it's been great. But if you think about what their superpower is, we talked before about you know, the superpower in kryptonite, this kind of thing. Anyway, the, um, uh, these guys don't vocally imitate like the songbirds do, but they, they use this in a back and forth way. The songbirds absolutely do not. They approach a female, they sing, they mate, end of story. But this is actually a kind of almost converse communication value, right? And, and that, that back and forth information is something that made us look in the literature and say, what is known about human conversation? How many kinds of brain recordings have been done during human conversation? And the answer is none. So we have collaborators and we've kind of done a small you know, side projects looking in the, in the human brain. And, and we thought, well, why don't we try this, you know? And so people who are patient volunteers who've given their time so that we can put 
uh, electrodes right on the surface of the brain during neurosurgical procedures. They're pulling out uh, tumors or, or, or pulling out parts of the brain that are epileptic. And we have maybe 10 minutes of their time to put these uh, arrays right on the surface. We can, in a very sensitive way, measure what's going on in their brain during conversation. And we see incredible stuff in, in there, right? So um, a, what we find is that one area of the brain, which is called the inferior frontal gyrus, and another area, the middle frontal gyrus, IFG is really famous because it's Broca's region. It's what made probably the most famous part of, of, the, of the human brain because we found in the 1880s that, that Paul Broca, when, when his patients uh, had a lesion in this area, they became aphasic. They couldn't speak anymore. When we record there, what we find is those areas are not active during, the, during active speech. They're active during planning. They're active as the person is thinking about what they want to say. And that planning, we think, through decades of behavioral work, is probably really important for back and forth communication exchange. You have your answer queued up, you're ready to go, and then you can deploy that in this kind of back and forth way. And, uh, and so we found that Broca's region and Broca's aphasia is very likely not a deficit in, in motor production, but in, instead a deficit of planning. We've kind of flipped the problem on its head, and, and my, my wife's father is aphasic, so he had a stroke, and he has real trouble speaking. And to actually see that is something that the, the, the singing mice made us curious about, about human patients, and that really made us start to think about how the human brain works and doesn't work. So in that case, so I'm to kind of come back to this hierarchical idea. So um, the primitives for speech, or the primitives for the for the bird song, are probably in the brainstem or even part of the motor apparatus itself. And so they're very limited number of sounds that they can make. And they, and then somewhere there are some neurons that when they fire, they activate those motor primitives, and you get that particular sound. Entirely true. And then there's a set of neurons that just decide the timing of everything in it. And then presumably, there are a bunch of neurons that say, hey, I feel like singing right now, so let's sing, right? Or maybe there's a female to sing to, and so it's time to sing. So if you take that view of the human work, then I guess you'd say, uh, we're really working at the upper part of that. So it is time for me to speak because the other person is done, <laughs> or, or is my a gap that gives me a chance to talk. Uh, entirely true. So there's going to be a timing signal that says it's, it's, it's time to initiate what I've got here. But something we're looking at now, this, this Broca's region kind of thing, is really, I would argue, more cognitive, right? So this is even before uh, we get to how, how the, the, the lips and tongue are all moving around, right? This is going to be pulling a concept out. And so one thing, uh, so we see something that looks like planning in this area of the brain. We think that it's important for back and forth communication and we can, you know, test that idea. And the way we test it is through local stimulation. This is a paper that we're, we're publishing now. And so the doctor, um, uh, typically, you know, since 1937, Penfield studies, what they, what they can do is stimulate the, the brain and uh, they usually do this uh, to functionally map different parts of the cortex. And if they stimulate and they say, ah, this person has speech arrest, right? Their tongue feels frozen. They can't get the words out, right? Um, then they know, well, we really shouldn't cut here. This is a motor area. 
So what we're doing now is just interacting, going back and forth. We, we ask a question, the, the answer bubbles up, they hold it, and they, they, they deploy that answer. And when we stimulate in these more cognitive areas, Broca's region and the middle frontal gyrus, instead of saying, my tongue felt frozen, this is a, this is a motor deficit, right? They say, my mind went blank. You know, so there's a delay because that cache got cleared, you know, or sometimes they'll answer a totally nonsensical word, you know, we'll say, what is the opposite of hot? And they say two. Uh-huh. But then if we read back the record, two was the correct answer for the last question that we asked, right? So there's something about this kind of uh, error structure and something about losing this very fast back and forth that happens when we directly target and perturb those regions you know, transiently, to, to really find out what's going on. So this is something that I think is really critical. We found something amazing that makes me really happy and we don't understand it yet. So maybe that makes it, you know, in science, those are maybe the most exciting discoveries, you know. So when we, uh, so we found this area of the brain that is this interactive hub, if you like, and, and when we stimulate that part of the brain uh, functionally, right, we stimulate all around cortex across 23 different participants, um, it's only when we stimulate in that interactive language hub do we see these these deficits where they their mind goes blank, they get the wrong word, it takes them longer. There were some people where the stimulation happened ventral to that. And it wasn't all in one tidy place. It was kind of really just below this spot. And they answered faster and they didn't make mistakes. So here's a case, and I think it's amazing. We basically make their ability better by stimulating this part of the brain. And so I, I think, you know, I have two nephews that are autistic and getting them to answer any kind of question is really difficult, right? You know, communication is, is hard. So you can imagine this kind of closing of the loop there could be something that could work directly there in, in, in that kind of a, of a case, right? So is the mouse a human? No, but it's one facet of a human. And that kind of back and forth is something that made us think, let's look in the, in the human brain, you know? And I think that, that's something that I think is inspiring to, to me to, to, to say, let's, and, and, uh, and now we're looking at parrots. So say something about parrots, because what, what you just, what I walked away with, with what you just said is that we were able to look at Timing and motor primitives in in the the songbird really well, but we either couldn't or didn't even try to understand the sort of the kinematics equivalent. Now is the time to sing uh, mechanism, and uh, and in the human we focus on that. Now is the time to talk or what kind of talking to do, or even like deciding what, what to say isn't a motor primitive issue. Motor primitive is after I know what I'm going to say, how do I get my muscles That's to right. move like that? That's right. So, uh, so human is great for studying this very upper level early on stuff, and the bird really great for looking at the bottom stuff. I'm kind of exactly hoping that you right. fill in the gap with the parrot. I, I, I'm kind of hoping we can fill in the gap with the parrot too. And so uh, we have worked with parrots now for a few years. I have an extremely skilled uh, postdoc called Zetian Yang, who's, who's been studying these animals. Um, parrots are incredible. So they, they have some very structured vocalizations, just like, <clears throat> pardon me, just like the songbird, where they can create a call 
and do this kind of sonic fingerprint over and over again. It's exactly the same call every single time. But then they can enter into this kind of expository phase where they're making what's referred to as a, a warble vocalization. And that can go on for minutes at a time, 20 minutes of a bird almost telling a story. If we have two birds in an arena, one bird will be warbling. And it's this extremely creative thing that's exploring the space. And, and when they learn words, these animals can learn hundreds of human words, they put them in the warble. It's like taking a shiny thing and adding it to the nest, right? And so that, that warble is there. And the other bird is just absolutely wrapped uh, with attention, watching, watching the other bird as, as they're as they're making this vocalization. And we've studied um, the brains of, of these parrots, so no one has looked in the parrot brain to find out how this works. And, uh, and unlike the songbird, which is something that's a very kind of motor primitive thing, right? So it, the bird learns over a very long period of time to precisely stamp out these vocalizations and nothing else. I'm staying on the track. How do you get to flexibility? How do you get to a place where that bird can hear my animal caretaker squirt water into their dish and make a perfect impression of that water, you know, as if they, any sound in the environment they can, they can listen to and, and work in there. And what we find, unlike the songbird, where, where things are really representing time and stepping through a series of, of kind of motor neuron commands, if you like. When you say things, you mean neurons firing in the brain are representing time. Neurons in the brain of the songbird are representing time, full stop. And, uh, but in the parrot, it appears at that same level of the brain, a kind of primary cortical region. Each cell seems to be a different key in a, in a, in a keyboard. And so cells are active, this one's active at a G. And this one's active at a B flat. And it seems that those different keys are, are just kind of there for the rest of the brain to. So the to motor play. primitives are actually represented at the high. Up level in the cortex. In the and, and so something can come in and just play those motor. They're available, fanned out for the brain to engage with, which is amazing to me, right? And, and so we're finding this now. And, and, um, and, and we could even stimulate those keys and make the bird produce different tones, right? We haven't done it in a very nuanced way where we can actually hit the, the B-flat cell and make the bird sing a B-flat. We're just using minor kind of micro-stimulation. But, but I think this is something that really is, is spiritually similar to what we see in, in the human uh, laryngeal motor cortex, right, to create these kinds of sounds. So then I, I'm, uh, I'm triggered to ask about the relationship between the cortex, I mean, the anatomical relationship, because they have one bird's brain where there's an HVC that does one thing. The parrot has an HVC equivalent region, and that's what we're talking about. So this is an RA equivalent, just to put a fine oh, point on it. Okay, um, so, so HVC is generating this sequence, this very sparse right. sequence, and then, uh, and then telling a series of of, so HVC is a premotor region that's this, this kind of chain of dominoes. And that's telling this motor region a, a, a denser series of motor commands. So that's like the QR code area that I showed today. Yeah, right? this is RA. RA. And if we look in the RA equivalent in the budgie, it's called an AAC, um, we, see a, we see a keyboard. So different cells are tuned to different notes. And we don't see that at all. If we try to get any kind of note so tuning... You have two homologous regions yeah. in the brains of that are two doing different fundamentally different things. They're fundamentally different. Yeah. So this addresses the question of how much commonality 
can we? But but one is really a captor of its own vocalizations and can't move laterally at、uh-huh. all, and the other one can sing any arbitrary song. So there's something really fundamental about that, right? There's something cool about the fact that there's a keyboard up in the in the in the cortex, and there's a lawful relationship between what this cell is doing and the sounds that the animal is making, right? We are next going to the HVC. Structure, which is called NLC. How does that work? So HVC is this flawless Swiss watch of a chain that is always creating the same series of timing commands every single time that bird sings. You know,、um, in the in the budgie, it's got to be much more variable, right? How does cognition actually factor into this, right? And how how can flexibility? How, how does how are these cells wired in a way that allows them on an ad hoc basis to create any arbitrary vocalization? And the warbling is kind of freeform; they don't、totally、necessarily do it the same way every Abs- time. You can look at ten warbles, and they're all different. How does that work, right?、Yeah. But, but they appear to be meaningful, and you can shape them as these animals learn different sounds, right? They 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 can create structure, but I I find it fascinating. So it's not only the The pattern of sound that is coming from the RA equivalent place, but also the rhythm that's coming from the HVC equivalent place. Assuming there is a rhythm being generated there, We, which is also sort of a, a jazz drummer rather than a. So, so we would love to know how to do.、That. How do you create a captive sequence that's kind of set in stone? And 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 etched in, in however you whatever metaphor you want to make to make that bird. Create this flawless song, and how do you go into the parrot and allow that thing to say, "I need to make these notes in this order," and some some structure, some higher order structure, is is the equivalent of somebody's hand reaching down and playing a chord, playing playing individual notes in whatever sequence you like, you know. But but it's amazing that that motor structure is there. So I think there's value in studying both, and I think there are general principles that can be pulled out. From studying both, we looked、um, in looking just ultra structurally within HVC at just how these things are all connected, and we saw a wiring principle that then was was found that next year in the entorhinal cortex, and seems to be really important for any kind of sequence generating、uh, structures. So I, I think that there there are reasons to to study different animals. I mean, not everything has to be about trying to solve the the human condition, but that is. Personally, what I'm really excited about, right? And I, I love the prospect of the singing mice that have these have these kinds of they're mammals. They have these these really engaged back and forth interactions. How does meaning work there? How does one singing mouse hold the memory of another? And and and、uh, we're we're really excited to record hippocampus in these animals and kind of see how identity might be be kind of stamped in there to help guide the vocalizations.、Um, But but in the parrot, I think this is going to end up really revealing something truly important about about how humans do what we do. So if I were to look at a sequence of birds that, from very rigid to maybe parrot being most flexible, and then、uh, ask questions like, what cell types are there in these nuclei? Would they would the answer be, well, their cell types are the same. What connectivity is there in the Nuclei. What transmitters are there? How so, similar are the brain areas? Given that the thing they produce is so different, how similar can the brain areas be? You know, I, I think you said cell types, right? And, and I think if I had to say, neuroscience、uh, in the last ten years is really a celebration of cell types, and and I think those of us who sweated those kinds of 
differences, you know, people working in the basal ganglia like yourself, right? You, you care about the difference between, um, you know, a PV cell and, and a medium spiny cell, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, to say, I recorded spikes from a cell in this part of the brain, yeah. right? Um, well, it turns out in the bird, uh, to allow a finch to do what it does, there's probably something like 10 different interneuron types that all have very different roles in the network, right? And I think the, the tools are hard, so we're not looking for our keys underneath the the streetlight, but we, we do the hard experiments to see that parvalbumin cells are doing something different than somatostatin cells are doing something different than arelin cells are doing something different than FOXP2 cells. And I think, you know, once we have a parts list and we have some kind of idea for how all these different pieces work together in the behavior, we'd love to know what's going on in the parrot and what allows that parrot to be free to do what it needs to do to, to, to be to achieve this, this incredible mimicry. I think it's fascinating. So one of the questions that arises to every parrot owner, or even to anybody who's just talking to the parrot for a moment in somebody's <laughs> house, is that why does the parrot do what it do at the moment that it does it? So people are constantly trying to evoke some vocalization from the parrot. Right, yeah. And the parrot always seems to be slightly reluctant to do exactly what you want it to do. And if you see one that will you know exactly what to do to get it to say something, then it, that's going to appear on YouTube for sure. Oh, uh, you're uh, right. Hundreds of times. And so uh, the, is the parrot an opportunity maybe to study that part of the, of the process? I mean, um, obviously, uh, the conversation between people or between these singing mice are great because you now have a a thing that you know triggers that's the, right. that's the behavior right. on and off. That's right. But there isn't anything really like that available in a parrot, or is there? Is there a secret to getting the parrot to say pretty bird? I, I think that well, <laughs> we, we, we've stayed away from teaching them too many words at this uh -huh. point. So we just want them to warble freely with their, their partner. And so that involves giving them plenty of space, giving them plenty of enrichment. Uh, they, they have these big arenas they get to, to live in. They get to hang out with a bunch of other birds, so they're incredibly social. A zebra finch, if you house a zebra finch by himself, he's perfectly happy for, for a long time. Parrots need to be with other parrots. They're, they're, and, and so we have arenas, and as soon as they feel comfortable, they hear the chatter of other birds around, they will, they will yeah. speak when they want to speak. But it's definitely the case that these, these birds will say different things in, in different contexts. So it's not that what comes out is arbitrary. If, you know, people have uh, done, done experiments where the different colored lights will lead to different responses of this parrot, for example. So the context actually drives the behavior in that sense. But um, is it gonna be something as nuanced as conversation? All of the different concepts we can hold in our, our brain is different than two different colors of the lights, right? <laughs> so um, I, I think, I. I It'd be incredible to get there. We're just not. Parrots are willing to all warble at the same time. They don't take turns or anything. Like that. They often take turns, and so what we can do is is actually have a very lightweight microphone on the the parrot that is engineered to only listen to that parrot. And these work extremely well. And in fact, when we first tried it, of uh, my my student was playing uh, Led Zeppelin song as loud as he could, and there was a female parrot making all kinds of sounds and all we could hear in that audio record was just the parrot that was vocalizing. And so it's this wonderful kind of source separation uh, 
hack, if you like, that, that uh, does a great job of saying, I just want to know what that one bird is doing. So I can relate it back to the activity of their brain. Yeah. So what's the future for that parrot project? I mean, are we free to do experiments on parrots, uh, anyone we want to? Or I know parrots are pet animals. And right. So, animals. so we use uh, a member of the parrot family, the parakeet, so uh -huh. a budgerigard. So they're smaller. Um, you know, there are other parrots that can live... 80 years, you know, of famous African gray animals like uh, Alex. And so this is a bird that was trained by Irene Pepperberg for many hours a day, and that bird can do incredible cognitive acts. Um, we, we are not recording from any of these animals. We're recording from another Australian bird, the, the budgerigar, and uh, they're very skilled. And, and um, yeah, we, we're trying to figure out uh, I, I think move upstream and say, if there is a keyboard, who's playing the keyboard and in what context is that keyboard played? That's something that I think is really critical. So you already have all that because you've been developing for years the technology to measure neural activity and really small brains of animals that are making jerky movements and That's right. all of that kind That's of right. stuff. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and we can do this. I mean, obviously, the brain has no pain sensors and everything is extremely lightweight and so the and, and we kind of counterbalance everything we are uh absolutely invested in making sure that our animals are happy and in fact if they're not happy they don't they don't sing they don't vocalize right so they give us an indicator that that they're doing great and so it's about giving them enrichment it's about giving them encouragement and and then we are fascinated by what they have to say Okay, well, that sounds like a happy place to <laughs> talk about. <laughs> Although we still, it seems like we're sort of uh, filling in the, the process of movement from opposite directions. That's right. In different species. And at some point, it all has to merge together into one story. Or we have to become convinced that it's not one story and it's going to be different. I think every animal has different lessons. I mean, I think that, you know, we can look at a, at a rodent and a rodent sniffs and whisks its way through the environment. We're, we're really visual creatures, right? I think we're, we're no match uh, for, for a rodent when it comes to olfactory power, right? So um, I'm not concerned about that that minor difference, right? The rodent is a, is a mammal. It has one neuron for every thousand neurons in us. But I think there are general principles that can come from that rodent dynamics, cell types, interactions. And I think those kinds of principles in, in an imitating animal, in an interacting animal, and maybe in the parrot that can do a lot of this and more can tell us a lot about the patients that we're measuring where we can't do these kinds of uh, more powerful cell type based uh, explorations. Cool. Well, thanks, uh, Michael Long, for joining us. And Thank you. This is fantastic. Thank you. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.